Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. But um, we met yesterday with a guy called Hayden Spensley, who is, um, uh, he's now the incumbent, or in two or three weeks, he'll be basically the vicar of, um, of the parish down in uh, Northampton, um, where he is. And he's been, um, he's been following us online and on Twitter for, for a couple of years, um, Hayden. But it was, it was how that came about that was interesting, because he said, oh, he was in, he was in, um, Nashville, because he's a musician and, and producer as well, he was in Nashville, and uh, somebody asked him there, you know, do you know anything about The Rock in York? Which he said, no. And they said, oh, man, we listen to it all the time. You need to, you know, you need to be listening to that. We'll really help you. So I have no idea who these people are or <laughs> how they came across us, but, um, but they're obviously receiving from what we're saying here, and um, of course Hayden in turn has received that and um, uh, is carrying some of that into his Anglican circles of influence the best that he can. So uh, yeah, so it's good. So we, uh, we bless you for being here and everybody who, who gets to see this. So um, uh, why don't we just pray and then uh, we'll talk a little bit, do some teaching on what we discussed last week in uh, in the back. I need to pray for John as well this week. You know, the, um, is it Betty's mm, sister's daughter? Very tragic. And uh, I think John and Betty have had their, well, fair share is probably the wrong word. They've had their unfair share of tragedy. So we pray Grace will be with you, John and Betty. So, Father, we, we know that you're with us and you always love us and you sharing our adversity. We pray for particular grace and peace and strength for John and Betty uh, and the family as, um, as they just deal with this whole fallout. Uh, and for all of us, Lord, as we, as we encounter the real world, we, we don't want to play religious games and just be a community that comes together like a bunch of drug addicts for a fix. Uh, but we actually want to be people who our own lives are changed and we make a difference for others. So help us to be that as we continue to learn in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to <clears throat> put some thoughts in um, that we talked a little bit about last week about, um, well, uh, the core of it is, I guess, the, the question of how seriously and to what extent do we take um, the picture that the Abba of Jesus is a God of peace um, and that Jesus himself is, was called the Prince of Peace. You know, his government would be a government of peace and yet, and yet we've already talked in, in a lot of sessions about the, um, the violence particularly encountered in, in the Old Testament records and um, questioned the consistencies and inconsistencies of that. So, so it, um, it brings us to this little conversation that's interesting, particularly with all the troubles that's going on in the world and our, our need to be able to answer some of those things. Of, um, you know, the question is, are we talking about, let's put two things on here. 
Are we talking about war and peace? Not the book, the, the real thing. Um, is that really our, our discussion? Is, is there war on one side of this discussion and peace on the other side? Um, or would it be more accurate to say, if we really represent Scripture and the conversation, that, that it's not so much war and peace we're talking about as it is this thing called violence? Now, we already mentioned last week as we were discussing that, uh, you know, when we talk about our view on war violence, we're not just talking about international conflicts, we're actually more often talking about things that are much closer to home. And uh, I've got a lot of personal experience of how that works in church structures because we've had a lot of opposition that really is violent, you know, can't say it any other way which has been quite shocking to me uh, in the context of what one should experience uh, within the community of faith and to think that there are people who 13 years on have never forgiven Chris and I for our issues. And when you think there are pastors who haven't done that and won't do that, you have to question, you know, for me the issue of salvation is not do you believe in Jesus? Because to me you evidently don't if there's no forgiveness. So these are the kind of issues that we have to wrestle with. So, so rather than war and peace, let's talk more about violence and non-violence. Violence, is it violence? It is, isn't it? Violence, that's a ver. Violence and non-violence. But then rather than having peace on the end, let's put, let's put peace in the middle. Because I think what we're going to find is that peace sits somewhere between those two expressions. And we need to understand what are the dynamics that drive that so that we can find a place of peace. Now, another word that I'd put under here would be the word aggression. So aggression, violence, and then of course over here we'll put a word some of you will be familiar with, the word pacifist. Of course, we, we know best the word pacifist um, as describing somebody who doesn't want to fight in a war. Uh, that, that definition of it has only been common since the early 1900s. Uh, of course, pacifist and pacifism is, of course, comes from the, the root word pacify, to pacify, to, to settle somebody, to do something that... That, that gets the aggression out of the situation. So, so we've really got this, rather than war and peace being just, you know, it's either peace or war, it's a little bit more complicated than that in that on, on the one hand we have violence, on this side non-violence, here we have aggression, on this side we have pacifist. Now, there's something else we have to take into account on that, um, because... How do they express themselves? Well, there is... Let me make sure I put the right words on here. There are, there are some other things we wrestle with. This is just building our foundation for what we talk about. Corporate. And if, if, you, if you do much research on uh, violence and war and people's position, you will, you will, you will come up with, against this... this um, this alignment, nation-state, which is really talking about what's the position 
that the country takes on that? What's the position that the government takes on that in that context? Now, to balance that, we have on this other side, we have, we have personal, personal, individual. So, anything that we come up with, we have to understand, has a corporate impact, but it also has a personal impact, and any personal impact has a corporate impact. Any individual position on this has an impact on the nation-state. So where we stand in this equation cannot be just isolated to, well, I just think this, therefore. Because everything that I think and every action that comes from that will have an impact bigger than my own personal understanding or or take on the matter. So, we need to understand when we're talking about should we be, should we be pacifist? Should we be totally non-violent? Should we extol our personal feelings to be imposed upon the corporate situation? Should we take our individual beliefs and impose them on the nation-state? Well. That sounds like, well, yeah, of course you should, because it's your decision. However, I want you to understand that embracing one can be the enabling of another. So we come up with this paradox that if I personally take a total pacifist position of non-violence, that's fine, that's a good personal position, but what about let me bring something in here that's very important. What about the innocents? What about those who might suffer because of the position that I take? What if my personal dislike of violence says, therefore I will not respond to violence, says that innocents are killed by violent men, because of my position. So my personal position actually enables those who do not own my personal position to commit acts that I am unhappy with. But I become part of the process of the violence that they suffer because I am not willing to take a position other than I am non-violent, I'm a pacifist, I don't agree with violence. Now, if you are a pacifist, if you don't agree with violence, that's fine, but you have to understand the equation is bigger than your own little world, okay? So this, this, as we said last week, is a much more difficult subject than just, you know, um, uh, is war right, is, is violence right, is violence wrong? All these elements have to be considered when we look at it. Now, of course, we then have thrown into this in our building our picture, um, the violence of the whole crucifixion scenario. So we're now looking at the issue of where should we stand on violence, where should we stand on war, where should we stand on aggression, how should that fit personal individual on a corporate and nation state level, while if we just present the face of Christian faith as we were served it, we have at the core of that the violence of the, cru the, the crucifixion scenario, cruel violence, um, horrible violence upon the innocent. And then, of course, we could run that debate further back, which we've had before, so we've chewed on the bone of um, 
the violence, particularly of the Old Testament. You know, and was God a genocidal maniac who just got his kicks from crushing people and killing their babies and stuff. So, so we have a backdrop to try and understand this that we have to deal with because on the one hand, as Christian people, we can't be preaching peace if then we have a very violent understanding of God and a violent understanding of the cross because the two don't go together. Um, so the problem is, if we just, for example, take the events of the Bible on face value, and if we have a certain view of the cross and the crucifixion, we actually accept divine sanctioned violence. Well, it was okay that that village was crushed, that all those women were taken as slaves to marry whoever the conquerors chose to marry, and their babies were killed, and do you understand what I'm saying? So, so we finish up in the back of our mind with the sense that the Bible gives us divinely sanctioned aggression. So, so we work from a position then, which of course the, the conversation that's gone on um, ever since, well, before Augustine's time, it actually goes back to the Greek philosophers, um, you know, BC rather than AD, of this, this argument of, um, of is there such a thing as a, a just war, which people like Plato and Aristotle uh, wrestled with, you know, is, is there ever a justification for going to war? If you do go to war, are the rules of engagement? Why should you go to war? What should you do if you go to war? Uh, and of course, all this, this debate has come through and now affects our position to take a, well, to take a position on that as, as Christian believers. So we firstly have to say, if, if I hold unerringly to divinely sanctioned violence in Scripture and in the cross, then that will color my view of violence, aggression, and um, of course, then you finish up with interpretations of books like Revelation as simply being God true to form. He managed to keep a cap on things for a while, while he sent Jesus, but then lo and behold, come Revelation, it all blows up again, and, and the one who was pretending to be nice and kind now becomes the warmongering, you know, nation-defeating, blood-to-the-height-of-the-horse's-bridles God. So, so we, we, we work from that, that model. So the other thing is, if you accept divinely sanctioned violence, and, and even in that, I mean, if you accept that God was so angry that somebody had to, God had to, in our terms, beat somebody up in order to feel, I'm okay now, which is part of the version of the cross that we were taught, uh, that would be divinely sanctioned violence. And if you accept that, your worldview will embrace ret retributive judgment. Or in other words, we are not violent, we shouldn't be violent, we don't want to be violent, but if you deserve us to be violent with you, we will be violent like you never imagined. And of course, that then becomes the picture that people have of God. It becomes a picture of retributive justice you're going to get what's coming to you. So, so for most of us in here, we, we come at a subject like this, wanting to think certain things, but then wondering why there's this little nagging thing, and it's because our models are based on this violent understanding of the crucifixion, a violent understanding of God, 
uh, uh, divinely sanctioned violence and therefore retributive judgment being what we embrace. So a lot of, a lot of gospel has been formed according to that. Now, um, Chris talked and, and I said some things about the atonement theories. These babies here. It's not a complete list. There are like some subdivisions. But if you remember, going right back to the beginning of when we started the lab, we uh, shared with you that there is not one view of how God redeemed humanity and what happened at the cross um, throughout history. There are many what are called atonement theories. Atonement being a, a breakdown word of at one to put us at one with God, to have a state of at one something needed to happen to fix the human problem. And um, so I'm going to very briefly give you these because they reflect, uh, this is the foundation we're laying so we can build on something that might shape our, our thinking um, in a more rounded fashion. So th- these are the main, these are the main um, atonement theories. Um, the oldest two being Christus Victor and Ransom. Of course, Christus Victor is, is from the Latin, which means Christ the Victor, which is based in the, in the, in the view that the problem was sin, sin, death, and the devil. And so when Christ died on the cross, he defeated sin, death, and the devil. So it wasn't about God beating up on humanity. It wasn't about God wrathfully killing a human so that other humans could go free. It was about God in human form finishing what was the problem with humanity, which was death and, uh, and, and hell and the devil. Okay? So, so that was Christus Victor. Um, that's what it's called patristic because the word patristic simply means it came from the, came from the Father. So that goes way back to, to the first century. At a similar time, you had this other one, um, Ransom, but that wasn't as popular until a guy called Origen in the third century really got on this, which was that for humanity to be right with God, uh, they were out of sorts, they were in slavery, and a ransom had to be paid. Now, of course, the big argument then became, who's the ransom paid to? Because if a ransom has to be paid, it means somebody is holding you to ransom. So is God holding us to ransom and therefore God had to use the blood of Jesus to pay himself the ransom for humanity, which would sound strange if God was ransoming himself, you know, wouldn't be a very good criminal. Um, Of course, the other theory was that the devil we had to pay, the devil had to be paid in order for humanity to go free. So, So the blood of a human had to be paid to the devil to buy humanity out of slavery. There are huge problems with with, uh, with both of those ideas, but I understand why they emerged, okay? And I'll make a comment about that in a moment. We'll just quickly run through these. Um, the third one there is called recapitulation, which is a clever name. What it really meant was um, Adam was the problem. Jesus came in the form of Adam, as Paul described him in 1 Corinthians 15 as the last Adam, Therefore, we recapitulated. So what went wrong in first Adam was put right in last Adam. And there is some value in this, but also some problems. But that's not, that's not what we're here to discuss. Because part of the problem with this was that uh, the last Adam, Jesus, was morally perfect. 
And so therefore the state you have to reach in recapitulation is being morally perfect. So if you're not morally perfect, you're not saved. Because you're not like the last Adam, you're still like the first Adam. There's the problem with recapitulation, okay? Um, then moral influence was another one that came in, which uh, that is my least liked theory in many ways because it, it's kind of, um, well, Jesus just came to show us how to live good uh, and how to relate with humanity. So he, he was influential morally, and therefore that's why Jesus came, to be morally influential, which really is, to me, is it's about, um, it's about behavioral adjustment rather than heart transformation. So again, we've talked about these before. And then the later ones, which most of us have been affected by the satisfaction theory, came in through a guy called Anselm uh, in 1097, uh, after the Norman Conquest. And uh, Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, he, he raised this satisfaction theory, which was basically the one most of us uh, have been introduced to in a later form, which is that um, God's honor was damaged uh, because of the sin of humanity, and he had created man, and therefore God's honor had been damaged in humanity. And, um, and so to satisfy his honor and his justice, he had to impose the penalty upon someone so that by imposing that penalty, he could then be okay with himself uh, to let other people off. Because then, you know, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's where basically that comes from. But Anselm was also on the fact that, that, that God's justice, God is just, sin is against God. So if he has to judge sin in order to uphold his justice, he has to punish that sin and he punishes it in Jesus, which suggests that the law and justice are higher than God himself. God can't do anything other than live under this law, which, of course, he, he's not under anybody's law. Now, of course, the later one, which we've talked quite a bit about, uh, which, which affects probably 70% of the church today, penal substitution, um, which was John Calvin and Martin Luther's version, mostly John Calvin's version, of the satisfaction theory from Anselm. And this, this came um, at the time of the Reformation. Okay, so for 500 years, that's been the dominant theory in the church uh, about the atonement. Because penal substitutionary atonement is a legal issue that we have broken God's law, therefore we are judged by that law, and that law condemns us to death. But if somebody dies in our place... Then, then God will be okay and he won't have to punish us for what we've done. The problem with that is there's no forgiveness in that. Because once the price is paid for something, you're not forgiving anybody. So if you're in court and you pay your fine, the judge is not going to forgive you for your crime. Because forgiveness doesn't doesn't play a part. He has to forgive you regardless of that, so therefore there are problems with this penal substitution, and I'll explain why some of that happened, and I'll, I'll show you how that relates to all of this, because a lot of our understanding of this, how we equate it, has been driven by these things that have been subconsciously fed into us. So what's interesting about these theories is that the majority of them uh, incorporate violence as a requirement. 
So we already have, we, we have um, uh, theories of putting us at one with God that incorporate violence. All of them incorporate violence. So then we wonder why we so easily and readily embrace a violent view of God and therefore a violent view of judgment and a violent view of how God will deal with us because all of these, well nearly all of them, incorporate violence uh, not, not as a subplot but actually as the main requirement. So they're built on violence. Now, I have another question about these theories. So we're coming all the way from the first century, about 70 something, all the way through here from, you know, uh, mid 1500s, right through to now. The question is what role did violence play in society at the time of a theory's development and to what degree? So if you look back at history, and the role that violence played in society and the degree to which that violence was played out, you can very easily see that although these appear to be biblical, um, theological understandings of the atonement, they are severely affected by the cultural influences of the time. So when life is cheap, when war is waged, when people are put to death, for very little, you can understand why violence would be readily embraced and accepted into theories about the atonement and theories about God because violence was a part of life. War was a part of life. You know, in, in, in respect to history, we actually live in very peaceful times. We really do. Now, it's not going to be very encouraging to a child in Syria but we do live in much more peaceful times. So, so these have been affected by the role of society at the time of those theories. So you could argue that they fall into two lines of thought. Um, a guy called Gustave Orlen, a Frenchman, um, in about 1931 began to quantify some thoughts on, on particularly one of these theories, which is the Christus Victor, which... What's interesting is this, this was most probably the original. Ransom came a little bit after. This was most probably the original. So you can easily understand why the early church, and I'm, I'm not talking about second, third century, I'm talking about after the crucifixion and resurrection, believed that Christ had been victorious. And that in their joy at his resurrection, they believed that, that, that sin, death, and the devil, and hell were defeated. So they believe hell's cast into the lake of fire. They didn't, they didn't believe hell and conscious eternal torment like you and I have been taught conscious eternal torment because a lot of that has come out of these understandings of violent methods of, of atonement because if there's violence in the atonement, why wouldn't there be violence in the punishment? So it wasn't difficult for somebody coming through into the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages to think, well, yeah, you know, of course, if, if, you don't, if you're not a follower of Christ, then you will be violently punished. You'll be violently and cruelly treated. And uh, if human beings can do that to 
x degree, God will do it to y degree because if God is greater than us, and bear in mind we're talking about the times of those horrendous uh, tortures that all of you have seen, read about, looked at of how cruel we could be to people, hang, drawing and quartering, if we could do that to people for their wrongdoing, then God has to be bigger and better than that. And so our concepts of God's treatment of the unbeliever, of the wrongdoer, had to be more than our views and concepts of a natural king, a natural government. So can you see how, how the consequences were getting more violent? And therefore, it was easy to accept that the workings of that were violent, and therefore we could be violent people. So, of course, so in here, in the space of this, we have things like the Crusades. We Christians going to get the Holy Land back from, from the Turks, from the, from the, the, the heathens. And, and if, you, you know, if you kill one of those, you do God a service, you do God a favor. And so, you know, we had the Knights Templar and all that stuff, so we even wore crosses going in because we've come to, to win the Holy City. And, of course, so many times through history, and, of course, in, in the Middle Ages, you got the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, you know, we were burning witches at the stake, which, of course, the test was that um, if, we, if we duck you under the water and you live, you're obviously a witch. Um, if you die, you obviously weren't. Which, you know, it's like, you know, heads you win, till, heads, heads I win, tails you lose. So... We, we have come through very violent times and, and what I'm trying to propose to you is that often our theories and thoughts reflect um, those violences. So, so um, this guy, Gustav Orland, he, he really wanted to draw attention back to the Christus Victor, Christ Victorious, that the purpose of the cross was not God taking out his anger on his son because he was so angry he couldn't live with himself, but was about Jesus dying as a human to defeat sin, death, and hell on our behalf, and we become recipients of his victorious work. Okay, now, we've got more to say about that before we, before we finish tonight. But um, um, when Orland drew attention back to the Christus Victor theory, um, he, he said something interesting. He said, the chief distinction between Christus Victor, which is Christ is victorious over sin, death, and the devil, so we're okay because Christ is victorious and we live in his victory. Um, he drew a distinction between that and the satisfaction theory, which penal substitution came out of, which is, is God's just wrath. God is justified in being wrathful and angry. And he drew a distinction which I, I really like. Uh, um, uh, and and it, it, it makes a contra contrast between what would be, he called it the work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the demands of the law. So you, you're kind of talking a little bit what we've talked about in New Covenant. But he said in the satisfaction view, which is this one about an angry God having to satisfy his, his anger, um, it contains divine discontinuity and legal continuity. So I want to write this because it's interesting. I need to talk about this. So this side, it has divine. Because when it says divine, it's talking about God. Discontinuity and legal continuity. 
So here's the point he's making. It sounds complicated, but it's not. All of these theories have one thing in common. They have legal continuity. They are based in a legal mindset, which is to do with law and legal process, which is why you can so readily put in a certain kind of judgment and a certain kind of punishment and what is required, because they have legal continuity. When you look at the theories from beginning to end in these theories, the legal side of it has continuity. You can figure it out. So if God is angry because we're sinners and sin must be judged and God's justice must be satisfied, then it all makes sense in, in the legal perspective. But his question was, does it have divine continuity or does this have divine discontinuity? Or in other words, it might work in a legal framework, but does it work in a divine framework? It might represent a legal process, but does it represent a God process? So he said, but on this side where Christus Victor would sit over here, he said what we have is divine continuity, continuity, and legal discontinuity. Now, you'll have to think a little bit about this, some of you, because I've thought about it. So what he's saying is that on one side of the argument, if it's a legal argument, it works. But the point is, it doesn't work as a divine argument. On the other side, which is Christus Victor over here, Christ Victorious, that has divine continuity. It sounds like God, but it has legal discontinuity. Therefore, what he's saying is you cannot put what has divine continuity into a legal framework. But what we've done is taken God and reduced him to a legal framework which then means that we don't know how to understand how peace works and then we don't understand how God works and how God works in that equation because we've reduced it all to a legal continuity. Therefore, we can easily say, well, there are certain people who should be killed, there are certain people who should die. Now, of course, within that you've got the, your little issues, like I said, you know, if... if if someone's innocent and someone's going to kill that innocent person but you hate violence so you don't want to be violent but you let that person kill the innocent person, then by default you've been the very thing that you said you weren't. You have been violent by not being violent. You've been aggressive by not being aggressive because you could have acted but you didn't. So these are all in here but the point I'm making is if we look at them through legal continuity we'll get into all kinds of difficulties. We have to form our belief from divine continuity not legal continuity which will cause legal discontinuity which means that you can't put what we're supposed to believe into a framework of legality of God has to satisfy his justice, God has wrath and that wrath has to be met. It doesn't fit, okay? And when we make that decision, and this was Orland's, this was Orland's argument, we have to come back to one thing which is Christ victorious and that we live in what he has done for us, that victorious role. Now, so, the question would be then, is there such a thing as a non-violent atonement? 
Is there a way to see the cross which physically was violent? Of course it was because it involved Jesus being punished and crucified and dying. Is there a way to see it in continuity with the divine as non-violent? That God was not angry, that God was not killing his son, that God was not being violent towards humanity in the form of Jesus. And that's called, that's called non-violent atonement of which you can... Trace that on the internet if you wish and see various thoughts about that very strongly coming out of groups like the Mennonites and the Quakers. But some very strong thoughts on that. So if there is such a thing as non-violent atonement, i.e. that the cross was not this picture of a legal God with a legal problem who's also personally involved to the extent where he is desperately angry and mad at humanity and mad at sin, and therefore explosively releasing his anger, that doesn't say that man had the bigger problem. It says God had the bigger problem. It doesn't say that man needed fixing. That says God needed fixing because he's got anger management problems. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we have to consider them to say, well, if God couldn't contain his anger at humanity and had to violently kill his son, then God's got a problem. And the other problem would be, at what point is that anger going to show up again? Well, if you believe these theories, easy, because you put it in legal continuity. When's it going to show up again? All the suckers that didn't accept what God did in Jesus are going to get it. And it won't just be death on a cross. They're going to suffer personal, conscious, eternal torment Forever and forever and forever and forever. Now, that has legal continuity, but it's divine discontinuity. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? To have divine continuity means that that can't possibly be the scenario, but while ever we understand violence in that model, it affects how we deal with humanity, what we think about war, how we deal with people, our own aggression towards one another. So, so if that's true, if, if there is such a thing as a non-violent atonement, the question is what impact might that have on our thinking about war and conflict resolution? If we no longer see the cross as God violently in his anger, beating up on Jesus, that's got to affect how we see violence in its wider context. Now, of course, within the sensitivity of violence, we're going to see that there is room for sensitivity and reaction, but we want to see what framework that will take. So, it sounds like a good idea to have a look at Jesus' teaching. Um, because usually in the conclusions of thought about violence and aggression and war, Jesus' teaching becomes the poor relation. And uh, it's interesting that most people who want to justify and qualify war uh, talk always about the New Testament until they come to qualifying and justifying war. Then they have this raft of Old Testament scriptures to justify their aggression, live by the sword, die by the sword, and all that stuff, which, yeah, it has some value, but we, we can't cover all that in one, one night. So I think it'd be sensible to look at Jesus' teaching. So I want to read some scriptures <coughs> to you. I want to read a, three or four scriptures. <clears throat> Let's start in Matthew chapter 5, in, in what has become broadly known as the Beatitudes. 
you know, how we should be, the attitude that should be. <clears throat> so here's what Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's contextualize this. Um, Judea is under Roman occupation. Uh, you are not a free people to do just whatever you want. It, you are an occupied state with an occupying army. And uh, their occupation is, is violently enforced. So we have Roman legionnaires and Roman soldiers. And if you, some of the matters were left to be dealt with by the Jewish authorities like Herod and um, um, his, 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 his brother Philip, who basically for finance and power's sake were in the pocket of the Roman, the Roman governor. Uh, and then of course the Romans, and of course any insurrection, any, any issues were, were treated violently. And as I've told you before, crucifixion was common, which is why when you come back to Christus Victor measured against these, um, you know, you're a sinner, God is mad at you and Jesus died in your place didn't work back in the first three centuries. Because, you know, a, a Messiah getting crucified was not news. First of all, there were more Messiahs than Jesus claiming to be Messiahs. And secondly, crucifixion was, you know, that's what the Romans do. Rising from the dead was something else, which is why at the core of their message was Jesus is risen. Um, and the Romans couldn't prove otherwise. In fact, all the circumstantial evidence would have convicted Jesus of actually being a resurrectionist. He, he really did. And of course, that's where the power of the gospel, the spread of the gospel came from. Not from the message of Christ was crucified, but from the message Christ is risen. But his death had a context. His death was the context of he is victorious. In his death, he has conquered. He has conquered uh, death. He has conquered hell and he has conquered the devil. So we don't need to fear. We have been delivered because of his death. We receive what he has done for us. So, so... When Jesus is teaching, he's talking to people under occupation. So therefore, they were more wanting to hear their Messiah say, you know, blessed are those who are good fighters. Blessed are those who are Jewish patriots. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, blessed, blessed are those who mourn at the Roman occupation and the loss of their Jewishness because they're going to be comforted. And blessed are the strong, for they shall inherit the earth. So, so Jesus was bringing an anti-cultural message into that environment that was a message of peace. So this is Jesus' heart, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not for freedom from the Romans, they will be filled. And this is one they would absolutely hate. Blessed are the merciful. Why the flip should we be merciful to these people who've came in and taken our land, dominated us, controllers? But Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they will be called sons of God. The last thing they were looking for was a peacemaker. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This was so countercultural to what they were wanting to hear. But in Jesus' words, this was a message of peace. This was a message not born out of a God who is angry at somebody who's occupied his land and taken over his people and therefore we should kill every last one of them like some of your Old Testament models, but a Jesus who came and says, you know, we want a merciful heart and a gentle spirit. So let's go to um, uh, Gospel of John, chapter 2. John chapter 2 and verse 13. Because this is also very interesting in that context, but shows you how Jesus dealt with it. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, it's not because the market had expanded beyond the town streets and had to be in the temple courts. It's because it was a a Jewish feast and people needed sacrifices but instead of them taking the time to raise and bring a sacrifice in the proper fashion uh, we had, we'd got a whole economy, a capitalist economy that had grown up well don't bother raising your own sheep, don't bother bringing your own sacrifice just turn up at the temple and you know uh, just bring a few shekels with you you can buy your sacrifice here so there was no sense of real attachment with with the process and what the process meant. It was just, this is what we're supposed to do. Let's do it as cheaply as we possibly can. Um, and, uh, you know, with, with as little disruption to our lives. And, of course, when Jesus encountered that, here's what happened. So he made a whip out of cords. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins. I don't think he whipped the people. I think the whip was just to make noise to get the sheep and cattle out. But he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I just, you know, get the picture of that. He's suddenly come in here. He's forcing all the cattle out. He's chucking tables over and there's money flying everywhere. And and all these traders who were thinking, that's wonderful, Jesus. We're so glad that you came. It's all these people who weren't too happy about that. But you, you cannot excuse this to say that that was not an act of aggression. You, you can call it anything you wish in you know, the will of God. And, you know, it, but it was an act of aggression. Therefore, Jesus in this process committed an act of aggression. But the aggression had a context to it. And the context was not related to you have to worship God and not do that. The context was related to how people valued the processes that were involved in their experiences of God. But Jesus was not afraid to confront things. Okay, now you didn't kill anybody. You know, that would have been murder. But there was some sense of violence and aggression that was taking place, but within a context. And that context was one of, uh, to those who sold doves, he says, get these out of here. And this was what was bugging him. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So we've got one context here of a zealous Jesus who, in peace, is still using some violence and aggression 
to put across a point. So we've got to consider, I'm raising this because you've got to consider it, you can't ignore it, it's there. But then we have another account of that, which is Mark 11, verse 15. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Uh, I'm saying this because it brings some balance to the fact of, well, we just have to let everybody pee on us, for want of a better word, and not trying to be too... You know, there's never an occasion where you should speak up or whether you can be forthright or whether you can push a point. This says that within certain context and understandings of divine continuity we can that does not mean war it doesn't mean hurting the innocents but it means that sometimes you have to meet a situation with a certain level of solid approach let's call it but not too much so uh, he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And verse 17, and as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? Mentioned this to you before. The context of that is not what most people think. People think Jesus was saying people should come in and pray in this house. But where it's from in Isaiah 56 and verse 7, the context of that is one of inclusion. That that a true house of prayer to God is not to do with the words that we say with our hands together and our eyes closed. It's to do with the level of our inclusion is the prayer to God, which is the context. So, so, so Jesus is responding to the lack of inclusion and he is pushing a point, but of course it's measured. It's not, he hasn't lost his rag. He is not to the point of, I have to make you suffer for this. It was simply to the point of correction. Now, let me just flip because there's so many issues coming here. Um, most parents begin their correction of children, and some people never stop this, not because they are correcting the child for what the child is doing, but because they are, they are punishing the child for disrupting their life. Okay? You're disrupting my life. You're taking my time. You're making inconvenience for me. Therefore, I'm angry at you. Where does all that modeling, all this ransom capitulation, satisfaction. I can be angry at you because God was angry at me and unless the price is paid, I'm going to stay angry with you. And so we bring then into even our raising of family a model that is based on these violent views of God where what Jesus was doing was correcting the situation for them as a lesson to say you have misunderstood what this is all about. You have cheapened the process. Let me help you. And I'm going to help you by disrupting things so I get your attention. But what I want to teach you is this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And when I say a house of prayer, it's a place of inclusion. You've made it a marketplace and you're robbing people when this should be a place of freedom and life and generosity. So we had to mention that to say, yeah, we, we have examples in Jesus' life where you could say he was violent and aggressive, but it was not in a legal sense, it was in a divine sense, a continuity of what is important and helping people. So, having said that, that's enough about that. Let's go to Matthew 5 again, 
and verse 43. This is Jesus teaching on how we should think. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that would fit perfectly with these theories. Love who's in, hate who's out. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, divine continuity, being sons of your Father in heaven, demands that you love your enemies and you pray for your persecutors. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, there is a sense that the violent process says, I love you when you change. I will do an act of love, but I don't actually love you until you change. Which, of course, does not represent what the heart of God is in Jesus. So if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? They were considered the biggest manipulators and scam artists of the time. And if you greet only your brothers... What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I haven't time to really expound on this, but this is another misquoted verse. People will quote you this verse out of context, but the Bible says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what is the perfection he's talking about here? He's talking about loving those who don't love you. He's talking about how you treat those who don't treat you right. That's the kind of perfection he's talking about, the perfection of of relationship that accepts people, not this perfection of, well, you know, I I don't swear, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't... You know, that's not... God could give a flip about that. What he does concern himself about is are we just like the pagans? Do we love those who love us? Are we neighbours to those who are neighbours to us? Do we greet those who are brothers, but not those who are not brothers? Jesus said, you can't do that. That's divine continuity. You can't do that. That's a legal process. Well, you've done me wrong. Why should I talk to you? That's illegal. Legal would say, well, yeah, you've done wrong, so you shouldn't be talked to. Divine continuity says, regardless of whether you've done wrong or not, I'm going to keep talking to you. I'm going to keep loving you. I'm going to keep being kind to you. I'm going to keep giving to you. I'm going to keep blessing you. And that's the kind of perfection he's talking about. Okay, not just one more. Luke chapter 6. But I tell you, it's verse 27, Danny, sorry. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Now, we've, we've raised this many times and it is a common argument of those who have contention, particularly with satisfaction, penal substitutionary atonement. How can God in Jesus tell us to love our enemies, but then God hate his enemies? Because the sum total of this doctrine is that God is going to destroy his enemies in the end. In Armageddon, In that understanding of revelation, God will destroy all his enemies. Well, hang on a minute, but we were told to love our enemies and to do good to them. 
even though they hate us, but now we've got God in this model who doesn't have to love his enemies and doesn't have to do good to them. In fact, he can punish them forever and forever and forever. That, that, that's, that's legal continuity. Why? Because they deserve it. They broke the rules. Why not? But it's divine discontinuity because it doesn't fit the heart of the God who is love and the God who so loved the world that he gave. So, I tell you, hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. And there are various expressions of that. Some of them trying to excuse what is the context of this, which is a gentle spirit, a loving spirit, a kind spirit, a giving spirit, a tolerant spirit a heart and a life that will accept a certain measure of discomfort in order that you can express love. So, so aggression should be really, really so far down on the list, like with Jesus. They wound him up with what they did in the temple, and it's explained why they wound him up, because of what they were making cheap. But that's not the first port of call. That's, that's, you know, if we get to that point, that's later, and it's for a purpose. But where we should be living is in this space here, this space of peace that's in between these two things. It, it balances in the middle of here. Is this one that says, if someone strikes you, turn the, the other cheek to him. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. You could have a whole conversation about that verse. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Not do to others before they do it to you, but do to others as you would have them do to you. So Jesus is dealing with some things, but the main rule of thumb is do to others what you'd have them do to you. Now, I have to presume, therefore, from that, that Jesus would be saying, if I were to cheapen and, and distort the understanding of what it is to be in the courts of God's temple and to serve God, I would invite you to do the same to me as I'm doing to you because I wouldn't do to you what I wouldn't expect you to do to me. So if God gets angry with us, then it would be right to say we get angry with God. So if somebody, if an innocent child dies prematurely, why shouldn't I get angry at God? If he's going to get mad at me, for what he sees as being my failures, why can't I get angry at him for what seem to be his failures? Do to others as you'd have them do to you because God doesn't do those things. And we have to release that away so that understand that what God is giving to us is his kindness. It always fits in divine continuity, even though life serves up for us some things that are unpleasant. But that's why I believe Christus Victor, because whether this life or whether in the next life, you know, Christ has conquered... Uh, death and hell and the devil and we have been freed through that so so life is just a passage into something greater and and something more so um uh okay so um so uh, do to others as you'd have them do to you verse 31 verse 32 if you love those who love you he's repeating this again what credit is that to you even sinners love those who love them and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. You will have divine continuity, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So, what I'm trying to show you in the verses we've read is that although within there there is some action that takes into account aggression and violence, that the real thrust and the real theme of this is very, very much uh, based upon this divine continuity of the nature of God, the love of God, the kindness of God, the generosity of God, and that that's where we have to live and not look at things through the legal framework. So, I want to read you something uh, to finish, which, which is written by um, Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr is a, a Franciscan Catholic priest who has written some great books, and he's a wonderful guy and has some great insight. And um, he wrote something that I think is helpful for us just to read to kind of tie this together tonight. This is not the end or some total of all that can be said on the subject, but I hope it's helping you to get some framework. This, this is the key thing I want you to get. This is our measure. Divine continuity means legal discontinuity. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. That's divine continuity, legal discontinuity. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or rewarded us according to our iniquity. But as far as the east is from the west, he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So, you know, you're into the David thing again. The blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, against whom the Lord will never count his iniquities or transgression. So these are the key phrases tonight. Divine continuity means legal discontinuity. Divine discontinuity means legal continuity. Therefore, my view is you cannot continue to believe some of these theories because they are based on legal continuity. Here's what legal mind would say. You did wrong. This is the wrong. This is the penalty. This is the punishment. This is therefore what the cross must mean rather than a divine discontinuity being corrected to be divine continuity. And this is really what... Roar is dealing with here in what is called a non-violent atonement. So let me read this here. In the 13th century, the Franciscans and the Dominicans were the Catholic Church's debating society, as it were. We invariably took opposing positions in the great debates in the universities of Paris, Cologne, Bologna, and, and uh, Oxford. Both opinions usually passed the tests of orthodoxy, although one was preferred. The Franciscans often ended up presenting the minority position in those days. I share this bit of history to show that my understanding of the atonement theory is not heretical or new, but has very traditional and unorthodox foundations. In the 13th century, the Catholic Church seemed to be more broad-minded than it became later. Like the United States Supreme Court, it could have both a majority and a minority opinion. And the minority position was not kicked out. It was just not taught in most seminaries. However, the Franciscans and other groups taught the minority position. 
Thomas Aquinas and the Dominicans agreed with the mainline position that some kind of debt had to be paid for human salvation. So this is the ransom theory. Many scriptures and the Jewish temple metaphors of sacrifice, price, propitiation, debt, and atonement do give this impression. So he's saying he can understand how you come to that conclusion looking at, at the models. But Franciscan teacher John Duns Scotus, uh, who was around from 1266 to 1308, who founded the theological chair at Oxford, said that Jesus wasn't solving any problems by coming to earth and dying. Jesus wasn't changing God's mind about us. Rather, Jesus was changing our minds about God. Now, you've heard that somewhere, haven't you? 1266 to 1308, John Duns Scotus was preaching that then, okay? Because he was thinking this through. So, um, uh, that, in a word, was our non-violent, at-one-ment theory. God did not need Jesus to die on the cross to decide to love humanity. God's love was infinite from the first moment of creation. The cross was just love's dramatic portrayal in space and time. We, we've used a word for that which said that the cross was not so much about cleansing as it was about covenant. That when we come through the legal mind, we think it has to be about cleansing. But when you come through the divine mind, you say, no, it has to be about covenant. And covenant trumps cleansing. Because covenant says, like with Abraham's event that he had when God told him to divide the animals and walk through, covenant says, I make this with me and you become the beneficiary. Are you in? Cleansing becomes, you're out, I'm mad that you're out, I'm going to have to do something and you're going to have to find your way in through what I have done. The two very different models that, that he's talking about here. So God's love was infinite from the first moment of creation. The cross was just love's dramatic portrayal in space and time. Scotus built his argument on the pre-existent cosmic Christ described in Colossians and Ephesians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's in Colossians 1.15 who came forward in a moment of time so we could look upon the one we had pierced, which is a quote from John 19, 37, that was a quote of prophecy to say that from the Psalms that you, they will look upon the one they have pierced because prophesying about Jesus. And we would see God's unconditional love for us in spite of our failings. The image of the cross was to change humanity, not a necessary transaction to change God. Now this, this is where this thing hinges. If it's legal, it's a necessary transaction to change God. Because God's the one with the anger that can't look upon sin. So the event becomes about changing God. But the image of the cross was to change humanity. Not a necessary transaction to change God. As if God needed changing. And that brings in the arguments we've talked about that, you know, did Jesus come to save us from God? Which if God was that angry, then Jesus really came to save us from God, not from us. Scotus concluded that Jesus' death was not a penal substitution, but a divine epiphany for all to see. 
Jesus was pure gift, and the idea of gift is much more transformative than any idea of necessity, price, or transaction. It shows that God is not violent, but loving. So his argument is, how much greater is it if we have gift in the undeserving, rather than because of the undeserving, violence has to take place? So then although the cross is violent and was violent by necessity because man had to die, the point wasn't God violently killing Jesus. The point was Jesus dying because blood was the currency of covenant and we had to get the right blood for the covenant and Jesus was the right blood. So it wasn't God's violence that was killing Jesus. The Romans were violent, the Jews were violent, but in the blood being shed, God was saying this is perfect because now we have the currency of covenant and I can show that my forgiveness was already there but now that covenant has been made for all time for all people through the blood that was given through Jesus so Duns Scotus firmly believed that God's perfect freedom had to be maintained at all cost this is an interesting thought if God needed or demanded a blood sacrifice to love God's own creation then God was not freely loving us because his love was dependent upon his demand for what it was that would put things right so that he could love us. You see what he was saying there? Then God was not freely loving us. Once you say, once you say it, its inerrant absurdity is obvious. Which is, I put it a different way and said that if we're only forgiven when the price for our sin is paid, then nothing's been forgiven any more than when you finish paying your mortgage, the bank or the building society write to you and say, we forgive you your debt. You say, well, you're not forgiving me anything. If you'd have done that 20 years ago, that would have meant something. But it doesn't mean anything now because the debt has been paid. So do you understand that forgiveness cannot be something that comes on the back of a debt being paid? It has to come right up front, and therefore whatever happens can't be interpreted through the model of legal continuity. It has to be interpreted through the model of divine continuity. This says God forgave, God loved, therefore this might just mean that that was the expression of his victorious conclusion to the whole process and our invitation into covenant. So, Uh, Unfortunately, the mainstream theory, which is mostly this satisfaction, penal substitution, led many people to dislike and mistrust God the Father. This undercut the mystical transformative journey for most Christians. So we have the image that people then have of God the Father as this violent aggressor, this cruel judge, this, this person who, you know, first of all, you have to accept a certain process in a certain way in order for him to even love you in the first place. And then once you've accepted that, if your life is not perfect, you might not be in, and then he'll judge you when it comes to this. So this, this whole image of a, of a violent God comes from, from that model. And then God the Father, as he said, we undercut the mystical transformative journey that, that we should have. So nearly done. Jesus not, was not changing the Father's mind about us. He was changing our mind about God and thus about one another. If God and Jesus are not violent, punishing, torturing or vindictive, then our excuse for the same is forever taken away from us. 
which again is interesting because when we look at questions like this, we have to hold those in tension with this, with this conclusion, okay? That if God and Jesus are not violent, punishing, torturing, or vindictive, then our excuse for the same is forever taken away from us. This is no small point, and of course, if God is punitive and torturing, then we have full modeling and permission to do the same. Does this need much proof at this point in Christian history? So our, our reason for feeling that we can be punitive and torturing in all the ways that we are, just a real punitive spirit, this highly legalistic continuity, which we've experienced even in the city, um, you know, from, from certain aspects. If, if God is punitive and torturing, then we have the model to do the same, which is why there is so much aggression even in the church community when it comes to judging others and judging things and measuring people because we, they see God as being punitive and torturing. And, uh, you know, we put nice language on it, but if hell is what our conventional view says, then God is a torturer. He tortures people with the cruelest of tortures forever and ever and ever, without any break, without any relief. So, is that legal continuity or divine continuity? That's, that's my main argument. Is it legal continuity or divine continuity? So, we've got to get into the right stream of this. When we get in there, it helps us to process all this information tempered by the peace-loving peace-giving, tender, peacemaking heart of God that sometimes has to press from those boundaries to take action against some things. Why? Because of the innocence, because it's not just about me protecting me. I can turn the other cheek to you, but if you're a wife beater, I'm not turning the other cheek to you. I'm coming after you. Why? Because my passivity to say, you're not doing it to me and I might show you the other cheek if it was me, but if you're going to beat your wife or your kids, the innocents, I'm going to come now with that peacemaking heart, but I'm going to take some action. But it's not retribution from a legal perspective. It is from a divine continuity saying, that's not treating people right. That's not doing to others what you should do to them. That's not showing them love. That's not expressing kindness. Do you understand what I'm saying? So my response comes from a different spirit. So, uh, Jesus' full journey revealed two major things. That salvation could have a positive and optimistic storyline, neither beginning nor ending with a cosmic problem. So it doesn't start with a cosmic problem, which we've talked about, this business of the fall, and it doesn't end with a cosmic problem of all these masses of people being tortured forever and ever neither beginning nor ending with a cosmic problem. And even more, that God was far different and far better than the whole history of violent religion had up to then demonstrated. Jesus did not just give us textbook and transactional answers, but personally walked through the full human journey of both failure and rejection, while still forgiving his enemies, and then said, follow me and do likewise. This is the crucial message of non-violence that most of Christianity has yet to hear. Without it, the future of humanity is in grave peril. But that would therefore suggest that with it, 
the future of humanity has hope. So my heart is, we are going to live and understand this subject from divine continuity. And if we do that, we'll get it right. We might turn over a few tables, we might scatter a little money, we might get rid of a few animals. But in the context of doing that, it will always be because of divine continuity. Not because of this, which then gets us into the realm of right and wrong and good and evil and judgments and punishments and exclusions and, and bans. And, and, you know, you have to get what you deserve. We are not going to live there. We're going to live in this divine continuity and find the place of peace because he is the Prince of Peace. All right, so I think we're done. So I hope that's helped and uh, we bless you and Chris might have something to add. I don't know when she's here and then we'll uh, kind of carry the conversation on as we go. Other than that, thanks for being here. We love you and enjoy the rest of your evening. All right. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again.